Okay. Today, my guest is Professor Gary Knight. I'll keep my introduction short to maximize our time with him. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about Gary as a person. Professor Knight is a thought leader and an esteemed scholar, and finally is a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I'll skip many of his accomplishments and give you a very quick snapshot. Professor Knight is a fellow of the AIB. Gary has published over 100 articles, co-authored seven books, two of uh, which are top IB textbooks. He has been a keynote speaker in more than 30 conferences and universities. Gary has served the field at various capacities. He was a vice president, track and program chair, and inaugural uh, chair at many AIB conferences. He also was the chair of the AIB Annual Dissertation Award. His 2014 paper won the GIPS Decade Award and he provides expert testimony on international business in the US House of Representatives. Thank you, Gary, for joining us. Thank you very much, Ilgaz. I'm very happy to be here. First question, what did you want to become when you were a child? Well, I was initially interested in becoming an actor. You know, when you're a child, that's something that you have these kind of uh, immature ideas. And, uh, but I also was very interested in science and, uh, you know, a little bit later on. And I think that being a professor is, is like a combination of those two things. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> in so far as uh, being a scientist is like being, is as being a scholar and being an actor, to some extent, you have to have acting skills or, public presentation skills, of course, when you're teaching in the classroom. Sure. Sure. So, Where did you grow up? I grew up in the United States, in the state of Washington, actually, in Pullman, Washington. My father was a on the faculty and uh, was an, uh, an associate dean in the College of Engineering at Washington State University. I normally ask, how did you choose academia? But uh, being a uh, being in a family of academicians, obviously this comes almost uh, second nature. So, how did you choose international business? Well, I was, for some reason, quite interested in things international from an early age, uh, particularly from my teenage years, and. That led me to do study abroad programs when I was at university. So I studied in France for a year. And then uh, in those days, Japan in, in particular was, was very hot uh, in the business world. And I went and studied in Japan for a couple of years. And then when I came back, I uh, knew that I would make a career in international business. These are year-long programs, right? In Japan, I was there for two years. Yeah. Wow. wow. That's a long time. That's a long time. So um, something that is not on your CV that people might find interesting. Well, uh, I guess I would say, um, gosh, when I was a teenager, I was an actor, uh, if you can believe that. I, I uh, was in Summerstock Theater 
and uh, university theater. And I did that several years in a row. And so that indeed helped satisfy my desire to be an actor. But I also knew, and so that was really a lot of fun and being up on the stage. And uh, that is a good exercise for building self-confidence for a, a very young person too. Uh, but I also learned through that process that you probably it's not a very practical career direction. But I continue to be uh, interested in I, I'm still interested in it today. It's actually quite interesting. One of my friends is a teacher, an arts teacher. He, he teaches uh, acting and his students are CEOs, actually. And he teaches them how to speak up uh, to talk to a point in the wall so that their presence, their stage presence actually increases. He's actually training as he used to act on, on the boardroom. It's, it's quite interesting. Uh-huh. Uh, if you stopped doing what you're doing today, what's the second best career path for you? What would you do? Well, I think I would probably become some kind of a scientist. I like research a lot. Uh, maybe a scientist in the medical field because I think I could have impact there. Um, and then if I think about it, maybe a second area that I could be interested in would be to become a journalist, especially a journalist who writes books, because I like writing. Do you write every day? Well, in one way or another, I write most days in one way or another. Of course, of course, I mean, everybody writes emails every day, but, but uh, in, there's various things that I have to write a, a lot and uh, Including uh, including research oriented writing, which I enjoy a lot. What's your uh, writing style like? Do you work on a paper in one sitting, a couple of days on end, or do you work every day, couple of hour intervals? Uh, what's the style of writing for you? Well, for me, I, I like. I think it's important to write every day. Uh, I I know that the more you write, the better you get. I know I'm a better writer today than I was. 10 years ago, and I was better 10 years ago than I was before that. And it's be, it, to me, it has to do with consistency and discipline, setting a particular time aside every day to write one or two hours at least. Perfect. Uh, regrets. Have you got any regrets? Do I have any regrets? Well, that's, that's interesting. Um, I, I think that... Uh, well, here's one. Uh, I think in university, when I was an undergraduate, for example, I, I think I would have developed my mathematical skills. Maybe I would have even gotten a math degree because I think that's very helpful in many areas. As for my career, I think I would have tried to become a better teacher earlier in my career because uh, I think that in many ways we can have a bigger impact on the world when we're very good teachers, when, when we're uh, 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 very effective at teaching and skillfully passing our knowledge on to others. Sure. Uh, what are you most passionate about? Well, I think that consistent with what I've said, I think uh, research and writing I think research and writing are my are both my strengths and my strongest interests. And when you mentioned better teachers or be, becoming a better teacher or learning to become a better 
communicators to, to students. Uh, is there a path? Is there a path that one should take? Uh, there's a formal style or is it everyone does it and eventually in 20 years they become better? There's a systematic way to becoming a better teacher. I know some of the best teachers and I've talked to them. There's information, of course, online. You can go take uh, training seminars, workshops on being a good teacher. But I think that being a good teacher, as much as anything else, means having a kind of empathy in the classroom, trying to be sensitive to the needs and wants of your students. And you know, when I was first starting out in academia, I worked at a large state university where the, it was an R1 university where the emphasis is more on research, of course, and teaching was not as strongly emphasized. We had large class sizes, so between 50 and 300 students in a given class. It's, it's a little bit harder to be a good teacher in such an environment. And then where I work now, Willamette University, we are, a, uh, we've, most of our teaching is at the MBA level, most of my teaching is, and the class sizes are much smaller. It's a private school. And that has given me the opportunity to develop my teaching skills. But I think being a good teacher is striking a good balance between essentially lecture and then activities and exercises that enforce the lecture. So introduce a concept and then reinforce that concept through experiential activities, exercises, uh, lots of discussion, trying to elicit students to express in their own words what they have just learned or to give specific examples of what they've learned, which is also quite useful with MBA students, because many of them do have a lot of work experience that they can bring to the classroom. Sure. Uh, let's talk about research. How do you explain your research and the importance of your research to, to people who don't read your work regularly, like uh, people on the street, people in a, in a, in, in a pub, in a, in a bar? <laughs> Well, it is challenging in a, in a bit because when you're talking to people in a pub or in a cafe or something, you, you, I don't want to be boring uh, with them. I want them, I want to hold their interest, but, and I, I don't want to, you know, maybe they're not familiar with what professors do and so much, but I think probably most people think that professors are just teachers, but of course, you know, at least half of what we do is creating new knowledge. And so, and uh, so I, I would try to make it what I explained very accessible. And I guess I would say that, therefore, I would say that my focus is on international business, specifically international business in small and medium enterprises. And then I would say that, you know, the history of thought in this area has been dominated by how large companies, multinational corporations do international business. And then I would explain that my research focuses on small and medium enterprises, companies with maybe less than 500 employees that historically have been neglected in terms of 
international research. And then I would say that one of the most interesting trends of the last 20 or 30 years is that many more companies of all sizes, including even companies with only one or two employees, have started doing international business because of technology, because of the internet, because of globalization and so forth. It's become a lot more possible for companies of all sizes to see the world as their marketplace. And so that's the area where I focus most of my research. Perfect. So you mentioned two things specifically, which are going to lead into the next two questions. Neglected areas of research in IB, that's number one. And you mentioned something about trends, and I want to tie that thing. First, let's talk about the evolution of the field from where you started, when you started uh, many years ago. Uh, what was the focus and what is the current focus evolving into and what are we gaining and losing along the way? So, of course, the historical focus in international business in terms of the unit of analysis has been the large multinational enterprise and then using foreign direct investment, FDI, as the entry mode, the entry strategy. Uh, but we know that today we live in a world, first of all, comprised of the vast majority of companies in the world, more than 90% are small and medium enterprises. And the vast majority of companies doing international business today are SMEs uh, and using not, not as much FDI, but maybe more so using basic international trade, including exporting and importing. And uh, so I think that Th that evolution took place during my career development, where you know, in the 1990s, I trained in terms of the large multinational enterprise and, you know, internalization and foreign direct investment as internationalization approaches. But then it became apparent in the wake of evolving technologies and globalization and so forth, that SMEs gradually became empowered. They became empowered to do a lot more international business and to see the world as their marketplace. And that is where I made the focus of my research. And so I think that we're living in a time, now we can talk today in terms of micro and small enterprises as well. And also, I think that increasingly we think about how international business is relevant to nonprofits and to non-governmental organizations. Uh, I think that's a very important area. I would also say that IB historically has been dominated by the management discipline. But I think we also need to give greater emphasis to other areas such as marketing and finance and accounting, for example, when talking about international business. Also, uh, the domain of marketing, domain of finance, uh, are you saying like uh, we should borrow more of their variables or the, their theories, their positioning? Uh, how, how is this going to work out? Well, um, of course, there are, you know, let's take marketing for as an example, marketing 
leverages both psychology and economics as two key theoretical areas. Uh, but I would say more so when we're studying the firm, we have to ask ourselves, what does the firm do in international business? And if you go along the value chain, most management activity occurs in the upstream area of the value chain. Marketing occurs more at the downstream end of the value chain. And indeed, marketing is the main conduit through which companies interact with markets. And, and you know, salespeople are sometimes fond of, of saying that nothing happens unless somebody sells something. And so marketing is a very important area we can think in terms of marketing variables like products and services, marketing communications, uh, distribution channels, and just general interaction, direct interaction in terms of performance of the firm with foreign markets. And I think marketing is, for example, and so is finance. Uh, these are two areas that have not been sufficiently represented in international business research, I would say. Uh, we had an interview with April Nil and for for, mark, uh, for for the finance side and for uh, marketing Nicole uh, Coviello. Coviello. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, next big research questions, things that we should do more of uh, in IB. Well, uh, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, I think that. Uh, context has been underrepresented in, uh, uh, strangely enough, when we're, we're developing theory, we always try to develop general theories that apply universally. But one of the unique characteristics about international business is that we're actually dealing with a wide variety of countries and that theories that are developed in North America do not necessarily generalize to the rest of the world. And so we need to be uh, thinking more about uh, context. This is not an idea original to me. Numerous other scholars have emphasized that notion. Uh, another big area that I'm very interested in is technology and technology's impact on international business. If we think in terms of the big technological developments that are coming along in the 2020s, we can think in terms of, you know, uh, 5G digital networks and AI, robotics, digital platforms. Certainly there's a number of interesting digital platform-based companies that have come along. Uh, you know, big data, what does that, what can we, how can we leverage big data to learn about markets and phenomena, for example. Uh, blockchain is a very useful technology for conducting international business. And I think that these technologies have big implications not least being reducing the costs of transacting internationally to almost zero, uh, making international production and global trade more efficient, facilitating the ability to innovate, uh, achieving better control and, and greater efficiencies all along the value chain. And I would say uh, even in the long run, making national borders less relevant. Uh, so I think that's a very interesting area to study. And then let me just make a quick pitch here for something, a phenomenon that I think is understudied, and that is the problem of global poverty. 
There has been much discussion in recent years. I think we know about uh, corporate social responsibility and sustainability. And these are important issues, of course, but I also think that you know, we still live in a time in which three quarters of the world still lives in relative poverty. Many places, large billions of people still living in rather bad poverty. And I think that commerce and trade and investment have a role to play in addressing that problem. Yes. Sure. I mean, this question is quite interesting for many reasons. Everyone has... Uh, there's a different perspective. One of them says, oh, you know, uh, climate change, climate change is important, then income inequality, and yes. now poverty. And uh, you mentioned making uh, national borders less important, and then there is also increasing nationalism, populism across the world. So uh, what's going to be the next five to 10 years of the field uh, for nationalistic or populistic uh, increase uh, in your opinion? How is that going to Im impact the IB studies? Well, I think these things ebb and flow. I think it's like the contrast between globalization and localization that globalization has been pushing forward on for decades now. Actually, globalization is a very old phenomenon, but it's been most prominent in the last few decades. But by the same token, there's been a counter-reaction against globalization. And so there are countries in the world that resist globalization in a sense that they want to maintain their own indigenous culture and they want to resist uh, pressures and cultural phenomena, um, you know, popular phenomena from outside their borders. And so they push back against it. So there is a kind of a natural ebb and flow to globalization. And I think the same thing can be said of nationalism and populism. Uh, these things rise and flow uh, with the passage of time. And I, I think that, uh, you know, those tendencies will recede again in the not too distant future. That's my opinion and to be replaced by other types of tendencies in the, in the kind of political institutional realm of the world. Sure. Sure. Um, about uh, the future of interdisciplinary versus multidisciplinary research in IB, do you see uh, any kind of shift to one side more, uh, or do you see more stronger emphasis on uh, a unique IB approach? Well, it is an interesting question. We alluded to it a little bit already in the, in the interview. We talked, I, I mentioned that national borders are becoming less relevant. Uh, and that raises the interesting question, does that make international business less relevant? But uh, by the same token, I think that human beings are naturally drawn to their home territory. Uh, people are, uh, I don't wanna say xenophobic, but they um, tend to be, they tend to prefer to reside within their own comfort zone, which usually means their, their home territory, their home country. 
And so I think one of the consequences of that is that people become, or people continue to be, and people will continue to be, I believe, relatively interested in things that are local to them, uh, as opposed to things that are occurring on the other side of the world, for example. And so the end result is that, I think, at least for the rest of my lifetime, people will continue to be relatively underinformed about what's going on uh, in other countries and businesses will continue to be less informed than they need to be about foreign markets and about how to do business in those markets. And so I think uh, just as a function of basic human nature and natural human tendencies, I think there will continue to be, as far as I can see, a need to alert people to opportunities outside the home region and how to function effectively in the big wide world beyond the home country. Uh, Gary, when you, thank you. Uh, when you talk to PhD students in conferences, in AIB conferences about academic of management, uh, what are some of the common mistakes that you see uh, across uh, junior faculty, across uh, PhD students, things that you would say uh, don't do, or things that you would say to do this more? Oh, what's uh, some of the uh, key uh, issues that you see? Well, I think that it is important for uh, PhD students and junior scholars to identify a research area that they're very important, that they're very interested in. We could call it the, their core competence. In other words, the notion of developing superior expertise in a, in a, a specific area. For example, in my case, it was born global firms, or for other people, it might be innovation management, or for others, it might be uh, corporate social performance. And then focusing on that area and developing one's knowledge in that area in order to use one's limited resources more efficiently and, and more effectively. We all have limited resources in terms of time and funding and I would say intellectual horsepower, you know, bounded rationality. And so I think that developing and focusing on your core competence intellectually as a scholar, whatever area that you want to focus on in your career is the most effective, the most efficient way to use your limited resources. Um, I think that's hard for people oftentimes because to the extent that scholars are intellectuals, usually intellectuals are interested in a wide variety of things and they, and they, consequently their research interests tend to be dissipated in a range of directions. And they never, in some cases, especially younger scholars are not on a pathway to become an expert in anything. They know something about a lot of things, but they don't know a lot about one thing. And it's, it's that kind of uh, developing a specific core competence, a, a brand name, if you will, in a specific research area, I think that lends itself to greater efficiency and effectiveness as a scholar. I think it's also more efficient, I would tell young scholars 
to find and work with good co-authors. And I think we all have to remember that we still live in a time or we live in a time in which getting good publications in top journals is still the best way to build a successful academic career. And so they need to focus on that. All of the skills and competencies and capabilities that go along with becoming a top research scholar. So something very interesting things about one of them, I want to ask a follow up on. You said um, they are not being an expert in one thing, but uh, you know, going after papers. Is this because of the, the style of publishing has changed, the journal uh, competi uh, competition for journal space has increased, or is it because of the training that has, uh, has changed? What is the reason why junior faculty or PhD students are not being an expert in one thing? I think that, uh, first of all, there is some thinking that it's you one can maximize one's job prospects by being more of a generalist. And I think to, maybe there's some validity to that, but, but I think in the long run, uh, you, it's important to focus to identify an area that where you really want to become an expert and focus there. I think another area, another reason why people don't necessarily, scholars don't necessarily focus is because they're kind of intellectuals and they are interested in a wide variety of things. I think it's also true that, you know, it's just like young people have a hard time deciding on what career path they want to follow. And then sometimes eventually they fall into various different paths. And uh, at the same time, I think scholars, especially younger scholars, experience the same type of problem that they're not quite sure what they want to focus in. And so they try various different things and uh, it takes them some years before they identify that one true area where they really want to focus their research. Beautiful. Gary, life after 10 years for <laughs> advice for um, mid-career mid -mid colleagues. Uh, <laughs> what's your advice for uh, colleagues after 10 years? Well, I think that my experience, I'll just say in, in general, is that a lot of scholars, you know, I, I do a lot of reviewing for journals and a lot of scholars focus perhaps too much on data and analytical methods. And some scholars are, are getting access to data and then developing their research opportunistically based, based on mining the data. And I think that one area where we really need to improve in general is focusing more on theory and what you are investigating actually means for theory. Phenomena, phenomena that we investigate should be framed, should both be framed within existing theory and should also aim at developing theory. And it should all, all make sense kind of in terms of nomological validity and consistent with logic and theory. And theory, we should be using theory to frame uh, whatever research uh, that we're conducting. I also think that uh, a lot of scholars suffer from 
not being sufficiently original or not focusing on the big picture of trying to develop knowledge that is genuinely new and meaningful, both to other scholars and also certainly to practitioners. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, well, for the sake of time, what's the question that I should have asked you, but haven't? Well, let's just see. I, um, you know, I, I, there, I, I, I'm, I, I like, I think that the questions surrounding values and, and principles that people have uh, is very important. For example, I think that uh, in academia, as it really in any field, it helps to have a sense of mission, finding your mission in life and then following it with your, with your passion. Once you understand what your personal, you know, we often talk about companies having a mission statement. Uh, what, what we, we usually don't think about everyday people, including faculty, having a, a mission, a, a life mission. And so I think when you understand what your mission is, you, you acquire greater happiness because the knowledge provides direction and the sense that what you're doing is worthwhile and full of meaning. And then once you know what your, your mission is, what research area you're going to focus on, for example, that helps you to define what your goals should be. And then once you know your goals, it helps you to develop the strategies and the methods that you need in order to achieve those goals. Mm -hmm. So that's an example of kind of some values and, and principles that I think it's useful for people to have to embrace in a career as they're trying to develop themselves as scholars and educators in international business, for example. Thank you so much for this very interesting and candid interview. I learned a lot. I'm sure the audience <laughs> will agree with me. Thank you. Thank you very much, Elgaz. It's been, it's been a great pleasure. Uh, I look forward to seeing you on the conference circuit when we get back to in-person events. <laughs> Hopefully. Yeah, it's, it looks like it might not actually happen this, this summer. We'll, we'll see. I'm hopeful. Uh, <laughs> well, I will say a pitch. Uh, for the summer of 2022, we are planning to have the annual conference of the Academy of International Business in Miami, Florida. And then we'll probably also have a hybrid option where people can also participate via a Zoom type platform in the conference as well. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you, Ilgaz.